Well, for those that already uh, sat down, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Come on, y'all. Y'all been here long enough. Y'all know the, y'all know the drill. Um, I am incredibly, yeah, just excited to be back with y'all. We just got back from Haiti on Tuesday, and uh, as great as it was to worship with other saints, there's just something about being back with the family, and so um, I'm excited to be able to hopefully share with y'all what God did and what God is doing there and how um, we hope to, um, as a church, be able to partner with what God's doing there, but um, um, but before we kind of dive on in today, uh, our text is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Um, it'll be on your screens, and it reads as follows. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. That you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech, in all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 10 Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united with the same understanding and same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus, Beyond that, I don't really recall if I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effects. And the church said, amen. You guys may be seated. A Greek storyteller named Asap was one who lived in the 6th century BC and is known for writing some of the greatest fables known to man. One in particular is called The Four Oxen and a Lion, and it reads as this. It'll be up on your screen. A lion used to prowl about in a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they just turned their tails to warn one another. So that whichever way he approached them, he was met with the horns of one of them. At last, however, they started quarreling among themselves. And each of them went off to pasture alone in the separate corners of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of all four. United we stand, 
divided we fall. United we stand, but divided we fall is a familiar motto to most of us. We've heard it in war movies. We may have seen it in different, varying different movies with this as its underlying theme. But um, the, the goal or the, um, the purpose of that mantra or that motto is to inspire unity and collaboration. Its core concept lies at this collectivist notion that um, if individuals of a certain group with binding ideas, such as a union or coalition or corporation, work on their own instead of as a team, then they are doomed to fail and all will be defeated. For many people, the idea of unity um, is, is something that we aspire towards. It's a good idea. It's something that we even applaud. We like to celebrate teams like the Los Angeles Lakers who are going to win a championship this year because they were able to come together around a common goal. You see, far too often, though, unity remains just a good idea. Unity really just seems like a good idea until it actually requires something of us. It's appreciated as long as it doesn't get into the way of what we actually want or what we believe that we deserve. We want unity without sacrifice. We want the most of what all that unity has to offer without the costliness of what it actually takes in order to experience it. So what do we do? We tend to divide ourselves in these little clusters and these little groups and these inner communities of folks that think like us and share common passions and, and, and don't really rub us the wrong way. We'll create these mini oasises of safe folk and my people and things like that so that my peace remains intact. We convince ourselves that our greatest, the solution to our greatest problem is to cut off toxic people from our lives as if there isn't toxicity within us. I am still waiting to hear someone admit that they are the toxic person in the relationship. Sadly, sometimes, though, in the world, we could probably say that unity isn't the first thing that comes to mind. We can look to our families and say, man, I don't really see a good picture or a model of what a unified group really looks like. But sadly, even in the, in the church, you really don't see a distinction between God's people and how they interact with one another and what you see out there in the world. And so today's message in First. Corinthians, the, the main point that I want to leave you with that I believe the text is trying to hit home is that true unity that pleases God will require you to give up your preferences. True unity that pleases God will require you to give up of your preferences. So the question is, how do we get there? Well, to give a little backdrop of the book of Corinthians. Corinthians, um, the Corinthian church was first mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 18, where Paul is on a missionary journey. And as he goes out, um, um, Paul passes this church for about a year and a half. So after about a year and a half, Paul leaves and he goes on another missionary journey and he starts to get this disheartening news about what's going on amongst the congregation that he loves so much. Corinth was a place full of rampant buck wildness. It was ratchet. 
There was prostitution. There was um, um, elitism, classism. There was this exaltation of gifts. We lift up the most gifted and affluent and impressive people, and we dismiss those that are unimpressive. For the Corinthians, they prided themselves on their physical appearance. They exalted gifts. It was a place where affluence and prestige and the pursuit of all pleasures was readily welcomed. And yet in the midst of this, God, out of the most unlikely of cities, the most unlikely of places, bursts out from amongst them a people, a church. But sadly enough, after not much time, the values of the culture begin to be imported into the church. The church begins to adopt values that the culture holds to and then take them for themselves. The reality is, is that the Corinthian church is really not much different than us. That if we're honest, that um, when we think about the church or our experiences or how we relate to one another, in many ways, we are guilty of exalting and lifting up the people who we feel are most impressive while dismissing those that are least. Paul is going to address divisions in the church where people have created these fan clubs. People have ever so subtly draw, drawn lies in the sand of where their allegiance really lies. You have those that would say, Paul is my pastor. You have those that would say, no, Apollos is my pastor. He is the best preacher I've ever heard. You have those that would say, no, I relate with Peter because we, we share similar heritage. On and on, these groups, these allegiances are very commonly seen in the local assembly. And though they sit together on Sunday morning, they couldn't be more divided. But Paul doesn't start first with addressing the symptoms of their sickness. Paul starts first in his opening greeting with what he hopes would remind them of the good God and what he has done for them. He begins with this, verses 1 through 3. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of, uh, church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord's and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. My first, excuse me, my first point is this. Unity starts with God. It's his idea. It's his creation. It's who he is. God doesn't form things that are different from himself, but rather he allows an expression that is meant to point us back to his actual essence and nature. Paul begins with before I'm going to address the horizontal issues of how y'all are relating with one another, I want you to understand first and foremost that your problem is not them. That your problem is not him or her or their clique. That's, that's not your problem. Your problem is a vertical one. Your problem is how you see God and what you believe about him. You see, what they don't need is a five-step, uh, a, a self-help book on five steps to help divided Christians become united. What they don't need is to go and sit in on Ayanla's Fix My Life show. What they don't need is another Enneagram post on IG or a book that helps you understand how to relate with ones and eights and sevens and sixes. That's not what they need. 
What Paul is after, he says, no, no, what you really need is some gospel recalibration. What you really need is that you've forgotten truths that I left with you and you've allowed the culture to begin to turn and distort your view of me. And so I've got to recalibrate you and bring you back. He starts first with various attributes of God, various things about who God is. And the first verse, him just stating that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't trying to flex on the Corinthian church. Paul wasn't trying to, even in the midst of accusations that he wasn't qualified or fit to lead them or tell them anything. Paul is not describing himself as apostle of Christ Jesus so that he can boast in himself. Paul is wanting them to know that church brothers and sisters, what you need to understand is that authority is a good thing. That part of God's goodness is that in me being an apostle of Christ Jesus is that God has not left you to yourself and he is ushering in order in the midst of what could be chaos. That despite what the culture would promote, leadership given by God is a blessing to his church. I didn't get many amens on that, so let me go a little bit deeper. During our membership classes, one of the things that we talk about is that the church is not a democracy. The church is not a place where everybody has equal standing or equal, um, that their voice carries equal weight, but rather know the church, God brings order to it by bringing leaders who can help us steer us in the right direction and be faithful. Part of our responsibility, though, as members and even as pastors, is that even if the pastors are the ones in the car leading the ship, the responsibility of the congregation is to allow God's word to bring us, even as leadership, under submission of what God would have us to do. And in the event that we get out of pocket and out of line, then the word of God is used to correct us and bring us back into alignment with God's will. And so for the church, he's trying to help them understand, look, you don't have to buck up against my authority. You don't have to flex yourself and act as though I have something bad to offer you. No, it is God's will that he's appointed me to serve you in a form of leadership. Authority is not a bad thing. The abuse of authority is a bad thing. Here we see God's goodness in that he has risen someone up to bring order to what could be chaotic. But not only that, we see that God is sovereign over little things that we forget about. He mentions that to the church of God at Corinth, hmm, easy to overlook, the church of God at Corinth. Okay, it's a church, we already know about that. But Paul is very intentional in how he describes this church. He tells them that I want you to understand the sovereignty of God is that you don't belong to yourself, but that you belong to God. That first, regardless of your proximity or your locality, you belong to God and his church is big and wide and broad. That the center of the universe, Corinthian church, the center of the universe, Cornerstone church, doesn't evolve around you. It is God's. And God is one that not only establishes the church's location, he puts churches in different cities, in different contexts, in different parts of the world, and yet he oversees all their affairs. God is the founder of this church, not them. He moves on to his pointing to God's care and concern by using a word called sanctified. Sanctified here isn't necessarily referring to the process in which believers who have now come into the faith are being sanctified or made holy, but actually it means, in this, in this particular usage, it means to be set apart for God's special purposes and uses. 
the church doesn't belong to itself. The church is God's bride, and therefore he determines what it is to accomplish, what its focus is, what it's to be about. It's not a social club, but it's a, it's a force. It's an army that God intends to accomplish his mission. He moves to, but keep, keep following me. He, he moves with pointing to God's strength. Called as, called as saints. God is the only one that possesses the ability to take unrighteous, sinful men and make them righteous. God is so powerful that he can take wicked, sinful men and give them new identity, washing them in the blood of his son and now giving them sainthood. Our identity transcends our worst decisions, our greatest sins, our greatest imperfections. Paul is aware that the Corinthians are wilding out. So this is unusual for Paul to start focusing on their identity in Christ, knowing that their behavior is not lining up to their profession. But what's beautiful about the kingdom of God is that your identity in Christ is not determined by your performance, but rather it's determined by what God has done for you. His strength is seen in his ability to make unrighteous people righteous. And as a result, the comfort that you and I have is that God sees you as righteous, fully knowing that you have unrighteousness still in your life. He moves into God's justness. Man, you're not just saints, like you're special. God is just not focused on making you a saint, but what God has done is he's called you to be saints, and then he's joined you to all of God's people who call upon him. There's this equality, the leveling of the playing field that Paul needs for them to understand that you are saints with every single person from the very beginning of history until the very end of history that has ever called on the name of Jesus. The playing field is level. God is not partial. He is both their Lord and ours. And he moves into finally reminding us of God's love for us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That can become cliche in our circles, but Paul was not using it as a cliche. Paul was reminding them of grace, not simply as unmerited favor, but grace that lets them know that God delights in them. The hardest thing for you and I to actually believe sometimes is that God delights in us. That he saved you and that there's nothing you can do to change the way that he views you, the way that he sees you, his affections for you. Grace to you, meaning that I want to remind you that God is on your team. God's favor rests on you. And peace, peace not in the sense of shalom, but peace in the sense of what God has done. It's this uniting together, bringing unity of what he's purchased for you. That he actually desires for a peace that is manifested and reflected in personal relationships with one another. That's what God has done for us. And so Paul, in unpacking those three verses, he's... He's starting to recalibrate their sight. He's starting to shift 
Man, I want you to see God for really who he is. You're, you're a little bit blinded. You're a little bit impaired. Let me, let me help you a little bit. But I got to let you know that this was God's idea. This was God's plan. He doesn't need your definitions. He doesn't need us adding to it. He just needs us to know what he's about. If you were to think of this, think of this as the seed. God putting seed in the dirt. But not only is unity start with God, unity is rooted in the generosity of God towards all his people. I remember one year getting invited to a Thanksgiving feast and um, it was at a friend's house. And so we go over there and, you know, there's this huge spread, turkey and uh, fixings and desserts and all of, the, all, all of that. Now, one thing over the years that I've learned is that um, the ability to cook is a spiritual gift. <laughs> and that some people are very well-meaning, but they just don't have the gift. And so this was one of those times where, you know, as they start ripping the foil off of the food and removing lids and stuff, you get a, you know, you know that you eat first with your eyes. So your eyes start to wander and you're like, man, that turkey looks burnt. That dressing is still the same color as the Wonder Bread they took out of the bag. That mac and cheese is soupy. And, and for our pale-skinned brothers and sisters, I just want a, a little, <laughs> a little cross-cultural training here. For us as black people, we like mac and cheese baked in an oven. And so it has to have that crispy cheese top. It's got to have oil bubbling from the side. You've got to be able to scoop it to where it's creamy in the middle, but still holds its form. And so we don't, we don't do things like put peas in mac and cheese. We don't add seafood, uh, we don't add tuna fish, craisins, or any other foreign objects that you might think go well. So if you invite us to your house for mac and cheese, and it's not like that, it's no, nothing personal. It's just cultural differences. We can love each other despite of it. And so, you know, this is one of those times where you just eat because you're grateful for the invitation, the preparation, you know, all the hard work that you put in it. But there's always that one person that can't just keep quiet. And so we're eating and we're getting ready to go. And, you know, this one individual goes up to the cook and it's just like, man, thank you so much for this meal. Um, man, those green beans were amazing. And so I look at them and I'm like, man, you was a lie. You know full well that those were Del Monte beans. All they did was open the can and heat it up. That's not cooking, that's preparation. And yet, but they thought what was most helpful to them was to flatter them with something that they really didn't intentionally mean. Paul's not doing this with the church. Paul is not looking for opportunity just to flatter them so that they can, he can sock them in the gut with what he really wants to talk about. Paul is genuinely thankful for the Corinthian church. Look at what he says. He says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's difficult that when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ straying away, we just can immediately Stop treating them like brothers and sisters of Christ. 
we can immediately go all bad on individuals and start looking at their sin more than looking at what God has done for them. You see, there's just the reality that Paul is doing is he's really coaching us and showing us about what real grace is in that it has the ability to overlook offenses. That grace has the ability to look at what God has done in and through that person, though they may not be where even we think they should be. Paul opens with, I can be thankful for you, Corinthian church, because of the grace of God that he's given you. I love how this hymn puts it called Grace for Every Need. He says, there is joy divine that is ever mine since the Lord has forgiven me. And I work and sing for my blessed king by his grace. I've been set free. He will ever keep me from the tempest's sweep and have grace for each and for have and have grace for each trying hour. So I go on or I go in love to this friend above, ever trusting his grace and power. Oh, this wondrous grace. Oh, this wondrous grace is for all the race. It is boundless and free, full and free. And I trust and cling to my blessed king who by grace now is keeping me. There is grace for each need, grace full, grace free, saving grace, yes indeed, flowing from the throne above. Grace to hide all my sin, all, yes, grace free. Pardon all may win grace in his perfect love. The grace of God should never be something that we grow dull of. It should never be something that we think we've got enough of it and so we can just live our lives without being needy beggars for more. Paul, I think, starts first with the grace of God because he realized that this is the most essential thing that we as Christians need to embrace and it needs to be a reality and an experience, not just the concept of our lives. Don't you need grace in your life? Don't you know that you are where you are? You are who you are because of the grace of God. Does the fact that other people have tasted this very same grace cause you to be thankful for? Do you come here each and every Sunday grateful for each one of your family members? Regardless of what they've done to you, regardless of how different they are from you, but are you just grateful that God has saved them? Grace given for every need. But not only that, he points to how they've been enriched in every way. It's sometimes hard to fathom an enriching that would allow us to experience everything that God has to offer. He says here that they've been enriched in Christ, in him, in every way, in all speech and knowledge. What we can know about the Corinthian church is that they had no shortage of gifts. That because of what Christ had done for them, that they had been enriched immeasurably. Think about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who owns everything and he just lavishes it upon you. Your inheritance is everything that he owns and yet he gives to you. But not only that, the gospel is confirmed among them. The testimony of their authenticity, their, the fact that they are a genuine church is something that Paul, in visiting him, he knows beyond a doubt, regardless of their behavior, I know that they are God's people. 
you could categorize these three blessings into God's past work for them, into the accomplishments that God has done for them, grace and enriching and testimony or proof of their authenticity. But he goes even further as he's working through these phases. He goes into the present reality that they're not lacking anything. They have They do not lack any spiritual gift as they eagerly wait for the Lord. That God is active right now in providing you and I with everything that we need in order to remain faithful. Do you believe that? That you have everything that God, everything that you need in order to be who God wants you to be. Our discontentment can grow when we see other people possessing things that we think God has been specially favorable to them and not us. We can grow resentful towards the people we see excelling and doing things that we wish we could do, but God hasn't provided that for us. Regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of your position or your platform or anything of that nature, God has supplied you with everything you need to be faithful. But lastly, he goes into future promises. He rolls down in verse 8 and he says, He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Four promises that we get here. One, you you won't have to depend on your own strength in order to make it to the end. God will supply you. God is committed to strengthening you to endure, whether through the peaks or the valleys, regardless of what it is, God is committed to strengthening you. But not only that, you don't have to be fearful on the day when you stand before him. God will present you as blameless. Think about for a moment your decisions last night. Think about for a moment the way you lived this previous week. Think about the worst things that you've ever done in your life. And then imagine the day that you stand before your Lord. And as God looks at you, he sees blameless, perfect, righteous, pleasing. That is enough for me to get at least five people running down these aisles. Because you may be able to recall your past sins, but you have no idea about your future ones that he still is covering. You walk in this life long enough, you be a Christian long enough, and you're going to realize that you are susceptible to the worst of sins. That you may be running strong now, But it don't take but an instant for you to derail off into the darkest depths of all sin. God has that fully in mind, and yet he still makes a promise to you. I will present you blameless. I will present you holy. I will present you righteous. You will be acceptable, not on your work, but on what I've done for you. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's our He's the head of our family. And if at any point your Christianity elevates something or someone in his rightful place, you're not living out Christianity. You've created a faith of your own. 
The seed's been planted. God's generosity begins to water it to where it begins to shoot out and root in deeper into the soil. But then he moves to the third part where our unity is maintained when our preferences aren't our main priority. The remaining verses 10 through 17, he goes down this one command and call for the people of God to know it is God's will for you to be united. But he deepens our understanding. He puts the scope into our symptoms and he begins to expose us because most of us don't really, un- we, most of us are blinded to our divisiveness. Most of us think that just because we've got white or black friends that we're united. Most of us think that just because we have theological agreement with people different than us, that when it comes down to the posture of our hearts, that we actually love one another genuinely. Most of us, including myself, think that if I can buddy up against someone who is famous or significant or powerful, if I can be in their Instagram shot, that that gives me added worth and value. God is after a deeper sense of unity than our proximity to other people. What Paul is after is stop importing your definition or the culture's definition of unity and then making that what you believe God actually has in mind when he uses the word. Make no like. Don't get it twisted. Paul's not playing with his church. That word unity is a reference to a surgical, a surgical procedure. It's the act of a bone that is fractured or broken being reset it back into place. And so when Paul is describing the unity that God has in mind for his church, he's actually pointing to the reality that the church, the church is meant The true unity in the church is a sign or is meant to be a sign that what has been previously broken has actually been healed. Think about that. God intends for our the supernatural reality of God uniting his people and bringing them into fellowship as one unit to actually reflect that in the natural realm. Which means that If our unity doesn't go beyond our social economic status, if our unity doesn't go beyond our skin color, if our unity doesn't go beyond our marital status or 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 whatever it is. Then what God says is it's still broken. And, you know, what's funny is that the world will sniff out fraud in the church in an instant. We can sing songs here. We can sit here, we can be a part of Bible studies, we can do all that. But there's something about those in the world who will look at sometimes churches' behavior and interaction with each other and say, I want nothing to do with it. I can get that in a country club. I can get that in my fraternity. I can get that in my sorority. I can get that at my school. I can get that at my job. What are you offering me that is so different? And what God says is that the church is meant to fan an aroma of Biblical unity. 
It's to fan a aroma of who Christ is in its nature, in its essence, so much so that the triunity of a God who exists as one God in three persons, fully God, functioning in different capacities, but yet fully united. That the church then is to be a reflection of that with its varying gifts and its varying backgrounds and its varying passions and its varying experiences and yet still have this genuineness of we are all coming together around the same goal and the same mission and the same purpose, which is not to exalt men, but to exalt God. The subtlety of this type of sin is that we, many of us, unknowingly do it. Let me bring it down home to y'all. When they say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ, that's the equivalent to members of this church saying, oh, I follow John, he's my pastor. Oh, I follow Rich, he's my pastor. Or, oh, no, 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 my, my pastor is Mo. And how that fleshes itself out is not this boasting or broadcasting to people. The way that it fleshes out is in casual conversations with other people, where you only see value in the one leader who gives you the attention that you actually want. A person is not their pastor because God has put them in place to be a gift to you, to care for your soul and to walk with you. No, they're only beneficial to me if I have personal experience with them. And here's what that does. It hurts the heart of God because it elevates yourself to a position to where you say, God, I don't really think the gifts that you give to me are good. I don't really want all that you have for me. I want to filter your gifts, things meant for, to be a blessing that you say. I want to filter that to the grid of my standards. God, I'm, I'm a better God than you. I know what's better for my life than you do. You gave me them? No, 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 no. That's what I want. And the fickleness of us as God's people is that for those that in the first nine verses would amen all of the good things that God has done for us, in the first nine verses, God removes any boasting that you and I can have about how we got where we are and who we are. He removes that, shattering that by the beauty of all of his generosity. And yet in an instant, we would poke our chest out and say, all right, God, I got this from here. The worst thing in the world is a backseat driver. It's a person who sits in the backseat that communicates to you Oh, I trust that you're able to get me to from point B to or point A to point B safely. But the moment you hit a bump, the moment you steer off in a way or you take a turn that Waze is telling you to take, but I know better. Don't listen to Waze, listen to me. Then you want to, I'll take it from here. How often in the church do we do that with God? If you find yourself and think that you're exempt from this, here's a few diagnostic questions for you. 
Number one, do you only get excited about the word of God when it comes out of the mouth of your favorite orator, singer, or preacher? Number two, do you find yourself only showing up to church or a connection group when your favorite preacher is preaching or the most gifted teacher is leading that group? Three, do you refuse to consider that your theological tribe or camp actually has just as many blind spots, holes, and gaps as the ones that you discredit? Number four, do you only befriend and are intentional with those people who are like you and share in the same passions, gifts, and interests? And number five, do you spend more time listening to the preaching on podcasts or YouTube videos than you do the own, your own pastors at your local church? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, then brothers and sisters, I believe that you have allowed your preferences to become your priority. You've made God your servant rather than you being his servant. Back in the day, we used to go to the mall. Um, maybe if you were born after 2000, you don't know what malls are, but um, <laughs> this was before Instacart and Amazon and all that stuff. So we would go as broke high school students and we'd go to socialize. You know, we didn't have money, so we were going to go to window shop. And what are the new Jordans? What's, what's the new fits? What's, I can't buy it, but I want to see it. And so in these storefronts, there were these glass windows and what Within the windows were these mannequins. The mannequins were very unimpressive. They just had the silhouette in the form of a man or woman. But, but the, the, the store was simply trying to advertise to you what the designer had designed. And so you look at these mannequins and you start to see fits. that you're like, man, that would look good on me. Yeah, nah, that's a little too tight. All this other stuff. And you go through... And what doesn't happen is that you look at that mannequin and go in the store and say, that mannequin is dope. Let me go in the store and buy the mannequin, right? But what you do is you recognize that the purpose of the mannequin was only to show off the designer's brilliance. That the mannequin was simply just showing off or showcasing what the designer himself was showing off through them. And so in the church, if we are at a point to where we are more impressed with the mannequin than the designer, then that's a problem. If we look at leaders as those whom God has given me and act as though affiliation with them gives me greater worth than what God himself has already given me, then we're more impressed with the mannequin than we are the designer. Paul continues on and he says in verse 13, is Christ divided? He looks at a relational issue, but asks a theological question. What's funny about Paul is that um, you know when you've made Paul mad? When he starts speaking of himself in third person. Was Paul crucified for you? Aren't you Paul? Were you baptized in Paul's name again? Aren't you, Paul? No man has done enough for you to be exalted as God in your life. Matthew 12, 25 to 26, Jesus makes it very plain to us what he's about, who he is. 
Jesus heals this demon-possessed man, and the Pharisees accuse him of being able, to, being able to cast out that demon through the power of the devil himself. And Jesus responds with verses 25 to 26. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. But if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Point of reference, Satan is unified in his attack and assault towards God. Skipping down 1230, he says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather for me scatters. The severity of what we do is that it is an attack on God. You can be a Christian and yet be playing on the devil's team. You and I know churches that have been dissolved because of one person, one person acting a fool. If we are as naive to think that within the church there is not a mess, there's not mess in the church, we don't need much forgiveness. In the church, people aren't going to offend us. In the church, relationships aren't going to be strained. Then you're naive. The power of the gospel is that it brings together a, a group of people fully knowing there's going to be sparks. But it's able to preserve those people because the priorities of God and what he wants for us is the most, the greatest priority that you and I have. Brothers and sisters, let us not live beneath the calling that God has for our lives. Three applications, I'll be out your way. First one is repent. Confession is a starting place, but repentance will require you to change. God hasn't spared any good gift from you. So enjoy it. Enjoy all that God has given you, even when it doesn't make sense. Secondly, reconcile. You might need to have some conversation with some folk that you have offended with your arrogance and your selfishness and your lighthearted comments that have planted seeds of suspicion to the leaders that God has put in their life. If we are a team, then we are only as strong as we are united. I've had to personally confess and ask for the forgiveness of my pastor for talking about him behind his back. I've had to personally go to him and tell him that my immaturity caused me, my selfishness caused me to not appreciate the gift that he had been in my life. And Sadly enough, some of us will be, we may not have the opportunity to do that. If life is but a vapor, then don't we want to make sure that if we, God were to take us from this earth, that we know we ain't been harboring bitterness and resentment and ungratitude and hatefulness in our own hearts. 
I don't want to meet Jesus like that. And lastly, rejoice. Celebrate that God, even though he exposed the cancer, he exposed the cancer. Celebrate that God could have left you blind and allowed your life to lead to a path of destruction that you couldn't return from. And yet he graciously reveals and opens your eyes to the reality that you're not alone. We all have the same problem. We all have this sin that's deep within us, these passions, these affections. They get out of, get out of whack that we need to call upon God and say, God, you ain't done with me yet. If Jesus was willing to empty himself of everything that made him rich, become like us, sacrifice for us, die on the cross for us, then he did that to unite us and to free us from our inability to fight, to fight for freedom, to fight to maintain unity at all costs. That is the call that God gives you and I this morning. That we need to be reminded that unity begins with God. We need to know that God deepens our unity and appreciation and gratitude for one another by looking at the generosity of God and not the behavior of man. But then lastly, that we are to maintain unity at all costs. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for how kind you are to us. We thank you that difficult truths are still beautiful truths. Father, you perform surgery on us to heal us, not to destroy us. So I pray that more than anything, God, the first nine verses would be all the more appealing, knowing that we very quickly fall short of your standards. We thank you that the blood of Jesus, the righteousness that he's given us is not based on our performance, Father. We help us, Lord. We stray so easily. And I pray that those who are sitting here today, would we not just be hearers of the word, but would we, would we be doers of the word? Would we trust that humility is better for us than pride? That to confess our sin is better than concealing it? And would this experience be something that allows us to taste how sweet your mercy is, how sweet your grace is, and how you dispense that very thing through your people? Father, who can hold up a finger and say that I am not that person, that I am not guilty of that? We all are. Father, though we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory, we're, thank you. we're thankful that through your son, Jesus Christ, your love doesn't waver, your acceptance doesn't falter, that we are still yours. And your commitment to us remains the same. You are faithful. You will be faithful to the very end. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.